You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 220 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Awake for the Sake of the Future. Twelve lectures given in Dornach from January 5th through the 28th of 1923. Translated by Jan W. Gates. This is Lecture 1, entitled Meeting Humanity's New Need for Christ Through a New Knowledge of Christ given in Dornach on January 5th, 1923. Readers aside, this is four days after the burning down of the first Gertianum, and the smoldering ruins were still uh, there, and they were just a few feet away from these smoldering ruins in a building called the Schreinerei, which had not burned down due to sprinkling water on it during the fire. And Steiner gave these lectures then again given on, in Dornach on January 5th, 1923. In the days just before the Gertianum was destroyed by fire, I presented lectures about the relationship of the human being to the course of the year and other matters related to this theme. Today I would like to go back to an earlier time, one we have often considered and must understand well, if we are going to grasp the course of human development in the right way in our day. Processes that occur in the human being can be observed in the recurring phenomena of the changing seasons as well. Over the course of time, knowledge from the ancient mysteries and schools of initiation was brought to those human beings who could grasp it and wished to spread this knowledge further. With this knowledge, human beings strengthened their capacities for thinking, feeling, and willing, and were able to see themselves in relation to the entire universe. Now we can ask ourselves, how is it that in ancient times human beings had an understanding of the relationship of the human being to the universe, that is, the relationship of the microcosm to the macrocosm? and knew how this was expressed in the unfolding seasons of the year. In the past, humanity had such an understanding, for the inner soul of the human being, at one time, was more closely bound to the formative forces of the etheric body than it is now. During the course I gave last year about philosophy, cosmology, and religion, I spoke about the origin of the etheric element in human beings. After a person has passed through suprasensory life, between death and a new birth, and already has sent the spirit seed of the physical body to the earth, the individual draws together the powers of the cosmic ether from which the individual's etheric body is formed. Only afterward is the individual etheric body joined to the physical body 
that belongs to the human being during earthly life. The human being descends from the spiritual realms in such a way that the soul-spiritual nature becomes enfolded within the etheric body. Then the individual joins together the soul-spiritual and etheric elements with the physical inheritance one receives through father and mother. In earlier times of humanity's development, an individual formed a bond with the etheric body before earthly life began, a bond that was more intimate than a person was able to make during later ages, including our present time. This earlier intimate bond with the etheric body allowed the human being to understand knowledge stemming from the ancient mystery traditions. Looking at the physical sun, a human being knew that the sun was the physical expression of something spiritual. Knowing this, people understood what was meant when someone spoke about the sun spirit. Recognizing the sun as the physical expression of spiritual reality was possible because people had experienced the intimate bond between the soul-spiritual nature of the human being and the etheric body, or the body's formative forces. It would have seemed ridiculous to them if they had been expected to believe that the sun was a physical globe of gas floating in cosmic space in the manner portrayed today by the astrophysicist. It was self-evident to human beings in an earlier time that the spiritual was inherent in the physical. And in all of the ancient mysteries, this spiritual aspect was identified and revered as the sun spirit. By the fourth century of the Common Era, the human being no longer experienced a close bond with the etheric body during the descent out of the spiritual realm into earthly existence. Of course, matters of time are approximate, but they are more or less accurate. The bond had been loosened. Increasingly during earthly existence, the human being used only the physical body when gazing up toward the heavens. In ancient times, when people looked up to the sky, they saw the sun, but inwardly there arose the impression that beyond its physicality something soul-spiritual was incorporated within it. In the fourth century of the Common Era, the human being began to use only the physical body, the physical eye, E-Y-E, to perceive the sun. A glance outward into the universe was no longer supported by the power of the etheric body or its formative forces. Increasingly, a person saw only the physical sun. The existence of the sun spirit, however, still could be learned as something that once was known and still could be described as traditional wisdom. Thus, Julian the Apostate, 331-336 CE, learned from his teachers about the existence of such a sun spirit. I have spoken about this on another occasion. We know that this sun spirit descended to the earth through the mystery of Golgotha. 
the Son Spirit exchanged his life in heaven for an earthly life, so that his influence, after the mystery of Golgotha, would place humanity's development in harmony with the earth's planetary destiny. You will note that the two points of time do not occur simultaneously. How does the point in time when the mystery of Golgotha occurred appear as we look back upon it today? We have to say that at the moment in which the Christ, the Son Being, passed through the mystery of Golgotha, he united himself with the existence of the earth. If we express this in everyday language, we would say that since that point in time, Christ is on earth. However, the capacity to see the Son Spirit existed for human beings up until the fourth century of the Common Era, because until that time they were still inwardly united with their etheric body or formative forces. Just as it was possible to see Christ himself when he was physically present on the earth, it was also possible, up until the fourth century of the Common Era, to see in the Son an after-image of Christ through one's etheric body. When you look intently at something and then close your eyes, you see an after-image of the object. Likewise, until the fourth century, individuals who had a close connection to the etheric body could look at the sun and perceive an after-image of the sun spirit as they looked out into the cosmos. Those who still were connected with their etheric body in this way, and this was the case mainly in areas of southern Europe, North Africa, and Western Asia, could say out of direct experience that the sun spirit is visible if one looks out into the heavens. And these individuals did not understand what it meant when the teachers and leaders of other mysteries said, quote, The Christ is on earth. Close quote. This I spoke about in the course entitled Philosophy, Cosmology, and Religion in September 1922. Remember that during the 400 years after the mystery of Golgotha, a great number of people could not grasp what was meant by the statement, quote, Christ has appeared on earth. Close quote. For them, what happened in Palestine was an insignificant event, just as it seemed to be for various Roman writers, who recorded it in an offhand way. For them, the man referred to as Christ was an insignificant personality who encountered death under unusual circumstances. These people would not have understood the profound mystery of Golgotha. We can say that these individuals did not need to think of Christ on earth, for they still thought of him in the old way, as being in heaven. For them, Christ was still the spirit of the cosmic all, who worked through light. For them, he was the all-inclusive light of humanity. For them, there was no need to look within and to search for Christ within the human eye, capital. There was a person who could not grasp why you would need to search for Christ on earth, and who instead understood that Christ is found in heaven, lives in the light, shines daily upon the earth after the sun rises, 
and no longer shines after the sun sets. Such an individual was Julian the Apostate. For him, what occurred in Palestine was like other historical events. It was an ordinary, even an insignificant historical event, because human beings living at that time did not yet experience a need or yearning for Christ. Today we wish to find out when and how this yearning to understand Christ in earthly manifestation first arose. If we want to grasp the successive stages in the development of humanity and the earth after the Atlantean catastrophe, we must keep the following in mind. The Atlantean catastrophe, which I have often described, takes us back to the 8th and the ninth millennia before the Common Era. You may read about the first post-Atlantean period, the ancient Indian cultural epoch, in my book titled An Outline of Esoteric Science. In the ancient Indian period, the human being lived primarily in the etheric body or the formative forces. The bond with the etheric body was so intense that you could say that the human being lived within or inside the etheric body or formative forces. It was as if the physical body was merely a garment. It was something external. The human being looked out into the cosmos more fully with the etheric eye, E-Y-E, than with the physical eye, E-Y-E. During the ancient Persian, or the second post-Atlantean era, human beings looked into their surroundings with the help of the sentient body. In the third, or Egypto-Chaldean period, humanity viewed the world with the help of the sentient soul. During the Greco-Latin or fourth post-Atlantean age, the human being saw the world through the intellectual or mind-soul. In our own era, the fifth post-Atlantean age, that is the historical present since the 15th century of the Common Era, humanity looks into the world through the consciousness soul. And this capacity to perceive with the consciousness soul brought about everything that I presented in my recent lectures about the origins of modern natural science in their historical context. The Atlantean catastrophe preceded, you recall, the ancient Indian period with its development of the etheric body, which preceded the Egypto-Chaldean period with its development of the sentient soul. Then came the Greco-Latin period and the ripening of the intellectual or mind-soul. Today our development as human beings is concerned with the consciousness-soul. Now, let us clarify what all this actually means. If we wish to represent this reality schematically, we would have to show the physical body next to and separate from the etheric body. The soul first became active while the human being was still living entirely in the etheric body. That occurred in the first post-Atlantean or ancient Indian epoch. When the soul asserted itself in the sentient body, it was still entirely within the etheric body. That took place during the second post-Atlantean or ancient Persian epoch. During the Egypto-Chaldean or third post-Atlantean epoch, the human being initially 
continue to experience the soul within the etheric body. During this era, the human being began to experience the soul inwardly as well. To the extent that human beings experienced the soul inwardly, they felt as if the soul extended partially or halfway beyond the etheric body. During the Greco-Latin cultural epoch, or the fourth post-Atlantean period, the soul element of the human being grew beyond the etheric body. Up until about the year 333 CE, the human being still experienced the soul within the etheric element. By that time, however, a person also had grown beyond an awareness of the etheric body. The soul remained only loosely connected with the etheric body and had lost an inner connection to it. The soul felt abandoned. It was obliged to go out into the world without the support of the etheric body. The need for Christ arose out of this process. When the soul was no longer inwardly connected to the etheric body, the human being could no longer gaze out into the heavens and see the sun spirit, not even as an after image. But in the course of cosmic development, the process of change extended over long periods of time. Only since the fourth century of the common era has the soul been inwardly emancipated from the etheric body. At first, however, the soul was inwardly weak and lacked sufficient strength to find the Christ being in a new way. Moving from the 5th, 6th and 7th centuries of the common era up until the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries and even into our era, although for the time being we will go only as far as the 15th century, we find that the inwardly emancipated but still weak soul felt something of the need for Christ. Because the soul was no longer connected to the etheric body, it could not seek Christ in the sun, as it previously had been able to do. But it was not yet strong enough to search for Christ in the mystery of Golgotha. That is to say, instead of seeking Christ in space, the emancipated soul needed to find the Christ being within the course of time. The soul had to be strengthened inwardly in order to cultivate these capacities within itself. Up until the 15th century, the human being was not strong enough to cultivate inner capacities sufficiently in order to receive knowledge of the cosmos through the soul. Therefore, humanity restricted itself to searching for the knowledge of Christ and the cosmos from the books or teachings that the ancients had left behind. They accepted as an authentic source of their own knowledge what had been historically preserved. We must acknowledge that the soul had to be inwardly strengthened. By the 15th century of the Common Era, mathematics, which had once been experienced through the etheric body, or through the physical body, by way of the etheric body, began to be expressed in abstractions. Furthermore, the abstraction was experienced as one's own, 
For example, we began to understand space as an abstract thought. This experience, in and of itself, did not bring human beings very far along. You can see, however, that it is a different kind of experience than a person could have had at an earlier point in time. This powerful impulse to draw something out of the depths of one's own soul arose because the connection between the soul and the etheric body that existed in ancient times was no longer at the service of humanity. Human beings had to inwardly strengthen themselves so that they could come to the Christ in the context of time rather than space. In ancient times, the etheric body had made it possible for humanity to see the Christ descending from the sun, to see the Christ in space. And so, up until the fourth century, civilized human beings could not really begin to understand the reports about the Christ and the mystery of Golgotha, for this perspective is embedded in time. We can see the irony in the fact that neither Emperor Constantine's testimony of the Christ, nor the denial of the Christ by Emperor Julian the Apostate, is based on a firm foundation. The historian Zosimus explained that Emperor Constantine was converted to Christianity for personal reasons. He had committed so many crimes against members of his family that the priests of the old cults would no longer grant him forgiveness. He left the pagan gods and their priests because the Christian priests had promised him that they could absolve him of his guilt. Constantine's conversion to Christianity for personal reasons was less significant than it would have been if his allegiance to the Christ had arisen out of an inner soul necessity. Initiation into the Eleusinian mysteries, even though they had already become very superficial, was all that Emperor Julian needed to become inspired by the Sun Spirit of ancient tradition. For Julian the Apostate, just as it was with Constantine, his allegiance did not rest on a deep foundation, even though he received extraordinarily important knowledge during his initiation in the Eleusinian Mysteries. In any case, neither a testimony in defense of the Christ nor a denial of the Christ was very important at that time, for humanity did not understand what was meant by the assertion that the Christ should be sought in a human form that lived within human history. At the beginning of the fourth century of the Common Era, the only ways that the human being could find the way to the Christ or to an understanding of the cosmos was through historical tradition and the written accounts of oral tradition. The human soul was inwardly emancipated but still lacking in sufficient strength to find the way on its own to the Christ or to an understanding of the nature of the cosmos. An explanation of the cosmos as well as the Christ had to be built up again from a new foundation. The historical tradition also needed to be built up again. It existed partly in written form and partly as oral tradition. The oral transmission was 
complicated further because only a relatively few human beings had access to the written transmissions, and these individuals would pass along to their listeners an oral interpretation of what they had read. The situation I have just described remained unchanged for many centuries, and with regard to an understanding of the Christ it remains so even today. But it was very significant in the fourth century that the soul had become inwardly free, although there are precursors and subsequent contributors to a new direction in human development, we can still point to the year 333 CE as the point at which the emancipation of the soul occurred for individuals who were at the forefront of their time, even though we know that the emancipated souls were not yet strong enough to produce new knowledge out of their own powers. It was already true that a person who was aware of authentic accounts from earlier times and thought deeply about these traditions could say, quote, Not long ago, there were still human beings who could see something divinely spiritual in the sun. I no longer am able to see in that way. But now, human beings who have the capacity to see something divinely spiritual have discovered that they can create other knowledge that lies deeply within them. For example, mathematical knowledge. My soul is now so constituted that it feels itself as an autonomous being, but it is not yet able to summon knowledge out of itself. It cannot draw up powers from within in order to express new knowledge. Close quote. Beginning to draw mathematical and mechanical concepts out of human souls was the most significant accomplishment of the 15th and 16th centuries. Copernicus was the first person who applied to the structure of the vault of heaven what he had experienced in his emancipated soul. The earlier astronomical systems of the universe were achieved through the help of persons who lived during the epoch of the intellectual soul. Those souls were not yet emancipated from the etheric body. And because the intellectual soul still had a measure of the power of the etheric body, they were able to see out into the cosmos. Up until the 15th century, the intellectual soul was still present. But from that point forward, as humanity moved increasingly into the consciousness soul era, human beings could use only the physical body and the physical eye to see out into the cosmos. These are the reasons why, during all these centuries and even up until now, the knowledge of the Christ and the mystery of Golgotha could be transmitted only through written texts or oral traditions. What have we gained through the strengthening of the soul since the 4th and 5th centuries? Outwardly, it is merely mechanistic knowledge, an understanding of the physical aspect. You will see that I have described examples of this in the natural scientific course. But now the time has come in which the soul must be strengthened even further, so that what the soul, with the help of the etheric body, formerly could see by looking into the heavens, 
the spirit sun together with the physical sun can be transformed. Now the human soul, casting its gaze inward, can develop the capacity to look into the eye, capital, to experience and feel the eye, and to perceive behind the eye the Christ. Let us imagine the following, not just schematically, but very concretely. We know that during an earlier period of time, using one's physical sight, human beings could see the sun, and with the help of the etheric body they could look behind the sun and see the sun spirit, that is, the Christ. Today, if we look within, we encounter the eye. We perceive the eye and experience the feeling of its presence. But what we perceive is very dark. The feeling of the eye first arises in the emancipated soul. At an earlier time, the human being used to gaze out into the cosmos. Now we must look within ourselves. Gazing out into the cosmos brought the human being together with the Son and the Christ. At first, gazing within merely allowed the human being to be brought together with the eye. Now we must develop the capacity to discover behind the eye what we used to experience out of the physical sun. The human being once was able to experience the Christ while watching the sun's light between sunrise and sunset. Now we experience the Christ as the illuminator of the knowledge streaming out of our eye. Thus we now shall find in the Christ the strong support for our own eye. Thus we can say that in earlier times the human being looked out at the sun and found the Christ permeated light. Now as we sink deeply into the self, we learn to recognize the Christ permeated eye. We stand at the beginning of such a possibility. Anthroposophy exists in order to make humanity aware that since the fourth century of the common era, human development has been in transition. Before the fourth century, humanity could look into the heavens and perceive the Christ as sun-spirit in space. Now human beings must deeply experience their inner self and find the inner sun-spirit, the Christ within the eye. Just as previously, Christ had appeared within the physical sun. The Christ has become the bearer of the eye, just as previously he had been the sun spirit. In the fourth century of the Common Era, the peoples who were rooted within the Greco-Latin civilizations began to feel drawn to the Christ in a way that could be satisfied through the written and oral traditions. Today, these written and oral traditions have lost their persuasiveness among the most pioneering spirits. Human beings have to learn to find the Christ deep within the inner self, just as humanity in ancient times was able to find the Christ in the sun and in its light. We need to understand the intervening centuries of transition in the right way. The soul had achieved its independence during this time, and yet it also felt as if it were empty. When the soul in ancient times had looked into the cosmos and felt endowed with the etheric body, it could not possibly have seen the universe as a mechanical, mathematical system 
in the way that Copernicus perceived it at a later time. Previously these things had been more deeply connected to the human being, and the world system that was being destroyed by the Copernican model was not being replaced by one that seemed better. It offered a world system that arguably was just as decadent as the Ptolemaic system seemed to be. But when the soul no longer looked for the roots of the etheric body within the cosmic etheric, it opened the door for founding a science of the stars that did not care whether or not the human being belonged to the starry heavens. The only tribute this transformed human being paid to the ancients was to shift the center of the new model of the universe to the sun, where, in earlier times, the Christ had been perceived. The sun became the center point of the universe, albeit the center point of the physical and not the spiritual universe. And thus a dim recollection remained that human beings long ago had looked up at the sun, acknowledged the sun as the middle point of the universe, and felt simultaneously the Christ being. You see, we should not concentrate our attention merely on the outer appearance of events in world history, as we customarily do today. We must never lose sight of the way in which our feeling experience is subtly interwoven with our knowledge and understanding. If you are attentive, you will perceive a remarkable sensitivity in Copernicus. Indeed, we might describe it as a feeling element that penetrated his intelligence and understanding. He did not simply calculate mathematically. He had an inner longing to give back to the sun something it had received from the ancients. Out of this profound inner longing, active within his feeling-imbued intelligence and understanding, Copernicus articulated three laws. The third law placed in question what had been laid out in the first and second laws. But over the course of time, astronomers, who preferred to see everything in a mechanistic way, ignored the third law. Copernicus proposed a law whereby the movement of the earth around the sun was not fixed as absolutely as scientists generally portray it today. Nowadays we see this hypothesis as a statement of fact, a phenomenon that can be verified in every observation. Thus, if you sat on a chair that was placed far out in space, and that would have to be very far off in space, you would be able to see the sun from a great distance and the earth circling around it. Indeed, we can imagine a chair placed far out into space and a schoolmaster sitting on the chair looking at the entire universe. However, this is not a scientific observation. Copernicus himself did not have such an inflexible conscience in these matters as do the people in more recent times who insist on the mechanization of the entire structure of the universe. Copernicus himself pointed out phenomena that showed that a simple notion of the way the earth moved round the sun was not absolutely and indisputably correct. But as I said, this third law was ignored or rejected by later scientists. They stayed with the first two laws. The earth rotates on its own axis 
and the earth moves around the sun. And they were satisfied with a very uncomplicated system, which in this simple form is generally taught now in schools. I am not trying to raise objections to the Copernican system, but the time has come to speak about these things, as I spoke about astronomy in the natural science course in Stuttgart. We must think about these things in a different way than it is currently possible to do within a strictly materialistic, mechanistic construct. And precisely with Copernicus, we have a scientist who approaches his model of the universe with a feeling-imbued understanding and perceives more than a framework of mathematics. It was not Copernicus's intent merely to construct a system of mathematical coordinates for our solar system and to position the sun at the center point of the coordinate axes. He wanted to give back to the sun what had been taken from it when humanity could no longer perceive the Christ in the sun. This example makes it clear that we should investigate more than merely the outwardly visible facts or external circumstances. We even should look beyond the evident changes in human thinking over the course of history. We must trace very carefully the transformation of our capacity to integrate human feeling and sensitivity into a deeper understanding of what we know. This became evident as the materialistic and mechanistic approach spread and flourished. With Copernicus and later on with Kepler too, we can still see a feeling imbued intelligence at work. This kind of intelligence was particularly strong in Newton. In the natural scientific course I gave in Stuttgart, I explained that when in later life Newton reviewed his early contributions to mathematical natural philosophy, it made him feel ill. After he first had observed space through a telescope, he achieved everything for a time through his mathematical mechanical faculties. And then later, when he examined the matter again, it made him feel faint. Afterward he wrote that what he had established as abstract space, with three abstract dimensions, was actually the sensorium, or mind of God. Only gradually, over the course of time, did human beings engage with the world through their capacity of thinking alone, no longer refining their intellectual creations through their feeling intelligence and soul understanding. Newton still tested his findings through his feeling intelligence as well as his powers of observation, abstraction, and ideation in his scientific work. Leibniz did so to an even greater extent, and so did other natural scientific researchers at this time. Anyone who examines the life of Galileo finds at every turn how all of the capacities of the human being were brought into play. The scientific researcher learned how to feed the thinking apparatus with the results of observations and experiments, just as one feeds a steam engine with coal, and the human being who approached knowledge in this way emerged later as the authoritative leader of scientific research, conducted without any preliminary or prescriptive hypotheses 
on the grounds that any predetermined hypothesis fails to lead to real knowledge. Thus we see that in the fourth century of the Common Era, the soul had emerged, strengthened by its autonomy from the etheric body, and yet sensing its own emptiness. In the centuries of the intellectual soul, the soul exercised new capacities and learned how to fill itself with many mathematical, mechanical thoughts and ideas, so that within the human eye, capital, the inner light could be found. The presence of the inner light, the thought-generating capacity of the eye, meant that it was no longer possible to speak about the eye in a figurative or symbolic way. The eye had become the supportive essence or core of the strengthened soul. Thus we learn to recognize what has happened to humanity's need for the Christ over the centuries. The longing for the Christ occurred more and more frequently. Today this need is very strong. And yet many human beings silence this impulse and push it deeply into the unconscious realms of the soul. Only through knowledge of the spiritual cosmos can a human being encounter this longing for the Christ. Above all, we must see as characteristic of our own age, the twentieth century and beyond, that the need for the Christ and the inner strength of the soul to find the Christ within the human eye, and so to speak behind the eye, is exactly parallel to what the human being in ancient times found within the Sun Spirit. Readers aside again, these are all capital I and a readers aside. The way in which the human being stood in relation to the Sun Spirit during the Greco-Roman era was as if it occurred by the last rays of sunlight. For the Sun Spirit appeared to human beings in its full soul spiritual radiance only during the ancient Indian epoch. Now we are living in a time of the first light of a new day, in which the knowledge of the Christ can be generated by the powers and capacities resident within the human being. The ancient knowledge of the Son Spirit, which Julian the Apostate wanted to solidify, can no longer satisfy the human being in any way. Indeed, the efforts of Julian were futile in the context of historical development. In the epoch, beginning with the 4th century, human beings simply did not know how to experience the Christ directly. There followed centuries in which the need for the Christ could be met only through the remnants of oral or written traditions. Now, in our time, we can truly understand what is written in the Gospel of John as the words of Christ to his disciples. Quote, I have yet many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Close quote. The time must come in which the human being understands what the Christ meant when he said, quote, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Close quote. For the Christ is not dead. He lives. He speaks not merely through the Gospels. He speaks through the spirit I, E-Y-E. When one spiritual I... E.Y.E. once again is able to grasp the revelation of the secrets of human existence. To the spiritual eye he is visible every day. He speaks and reveals himself. And we, 
are a feeble humanity if we fail to strive in our era so that human beings might receive and grasp what the Christ once wished to say. Two thousand years ago human beings were not constituted in a way that would have allowed them to understand what the Christ offered to them. Of course, human beings around the Christ could understand something of what he was saying. And the gospel as oral and written tradition has continued to exist over time for all human beings, so that the words quoted above have been spread throughout the earth. Now humanity must strive to replace the Christ of oral and written tradition with the living Christ. In our day it is unchristian if you wish only to reaffirm what has been written or passed down for centuries. For now it is so that every day the revelation of the Christ speaks out of the spiritual world and into our thinking that is striving for illumination into our feeling hearts, and into our will-filled humanity. The End of Lecture 1